Hey folks, welcome to the Encuentros Latinx podcast, where we explore stories of spirituality, identity, and culture. I'm Taylor Amaj. I'm an author, editor, and your host for the show. My Latina heritage is Boricua, and I'm doing this podcast as part of Proyecto Encuentros de Gracia y Bienvenida, an LGBTQ Latinx ministry in the United Church of Christ. My guest today is Reverend Alba Onofrio, a.k.a. Reverend Sex, and we really get into naming the insidious project of whiteness to claim Latinx who feel distanced from their heritage, unpack the complexities of mixed identity, and name this force called Christian supremacy. This may be a UCC-backed podcast, but the UCC gets called out, and honestly, we're blessed for it. So I hope you enjoy listening to this conversation as much as I enjoyed having it. Let's get right into this encuentro. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. I am super excited to have you on. Could you introduce us by giving us your name and pronouns? Yeah, I'm glad to be here. My name is Reverend Alba Onofrio, also Reverend Six, and my pronouns in English are they and in Spanish, ella or ella. Wonderful. And what country or countries do you and your family come from, like your Latinx self? Ooh, I'm mixed, and uh, my mother's family comes from Colombia. She was an immigrant, um, and so were my grandparents. Wonderful. Um, What is a good memory that you have about the country if you've been to Colombia, and if not, the culture that you grew up around? Ooh, that's such a great question. Uh, My most wonderful memory of Colombia is just from earlier this year. After many, many years of saving and planning, I was able to take my daughter back to Colombia to visit the towns um, and pueblitos that my grandmother and grandfather came from. And we were able to meet extended family, spend time in several cities and just get to know a lot more about the food and the culture and the language. And so um, we were there and it was really amazing and wonderful to spend time as an adult being in a place that I knew stories about, but hadn't actually like put my body on with my 10 year old and seeing it both through my 10 year old's eyes as well as through my eyes. Although the culture I grew up in was Appalachia in Western North Carolina. I was raised by my great-grandmother, my white great-grandmother, who was part of the coal mining country. And and so Latinidad wasn't very much a part of my childhood, except for when I went to visit my abuelos uh, in Texas. So I have this very mixed this mixed history. And when I started really coming into my Latinidad after spending 10 years in immigrants' rights work, I was mostly around folks from Mexico and Central America. So most of my food taste, the things I think are delicious and wonderful, are spiced and cooked mostly by people from Mesoamerica. So I consider myself Latinx because I'm a little bit from here, a little bit from there, and have been loved by folks from all over. Yeah, that's awesome. And, you know, I I kind of have a similar-ish experience where 
Um, I'm Boricua from my mother, and my father is whatever Western European peoples came together to create our family and all that kind of stuff. So I definitely um, have been in this phase of living into Latinidad more and more in more expressive ways um, so that people actually notice that because I definitely, it's easy for people to read me just a singular way and not actually know that I'm Latina until I say it. So I've been in this space of reclaiming it and living into it in, in my own way as well. Um, so yes. yeah. I'm so excited about that. It's a passion of mine, actually. Um, deep, deep, deep passion because there's a political move in our country in the United States right now and has been for a while to try to get Latinas, Latinos, Latines absorbed into whiteness in a very intense way that will be able to maintain a white majority in this country. And too many of us come from families that assimilated in order to try to ensure survival and safety for our communities and our families. And part of that assimilation is buying into a narrative about race and getting closer to whiteness. And um, it's really a, an important moment, especially right now when Black liberation and Black struggles are really present and so strong that we take the time to recognize our ancestors and not all of those ancestors are white. As Latinos and Latinas and Latinas, we have to do that work. Like we must do the work of decolonizing that strategy, which I understand a lot of our ancestors did, or some of us who grew up in places where we weren't surrounded by a Latina community or family, it's easier for us to just go along with the narrative of a single idea of like, oh, we're white, especially because we have, if we have um, passing privilege um, and, and white or light skin. And so it's a passion of mine to help all of us like me who have to do this work, it's a little bit harder to figure out how do we find our Latinidad? How do we find our way back to our raíces? How do we recognize the ancestors that came from three races of people who kind of joined in together? A lot of them not by choice uh, to make what is now kind of a pan-Latinidad kind of identity that is really important. Everything you just said is speaking my language and where I am and where I'm going. So I love it because I have just been, my whole identity crisis has absolutely flared up over the past few months based on just everything going on. And I've had, I've had issues with confronting spaces that I could be in but maybe I shouldn't be in and just all of the all of that complexity and I really do see much more starkly now that movement that you said about whiteness wanting to take those of us who are really light and and passing to just take that and erase the latinic the latinx part of it um and I for I mean for many years I've seen and felt how much internal harm that did to me. And now I'm even more like, this is so insidious. Mm -hmm. It is absolutely insidious. And when I'm talking about this, I'm not, I'm not putting individual blame on my mother or my father for how they raised me and where we moved and where I ended up growing up. Um, you know, that that's not that's not the level that I'm speaking at. I'm speaking at a much more like 
structural level, if that makes sense. Um, it's just like all of these different forces, all these different factors come together uh, and came together in my life to make it so that um, I invalidated myself as a Puerto Rican. Mm-hmm. Um, I believed that because I didn't speak Spanish mm-hmm. um, and that, you know, I didn't really count. And, you know, I, I when I looked at my baby pictures recently and I knew this, I was a brown baby when I came out, um, but that's not the case anymore. And so, you know, that like I used to joke like, oh, I'm the whitest Puerto Rican you'll ever meet. Like I used to just kind of tell people that like off the bat. Um, and it was definitely coming from this place of not feeling like I was allowed to own this part of me, despite the fact that, you know, yeah, I didn't grow up in Chicago or New York or Orlando, but my parents still were very intentional about going to Puerto Rico every summer to visit my abuelos and my cousins and all of those folks. So I did have experiences growing up. I've been to Puerto Rico so many times in my life, and I'm very grateful for that. But even with all of that and growing up with my mom cooking food and, you know, all of that, even with that, I still, you know, I went I went to school with mostly, I mean, I guess certainly there were, you know, other folks there, but pretty much all of my friends were white kids and uh, some of them ended up speaking better Spanish than I did because they went farther in Spanish class. They went up to Spanish six and I just got to Spanish five because I was done with it by that point. And I had this one friend who would like give me crap about it. Like she'd be like, and she'd be talking to me in Spanish and she would say that she'd be like, oh, it's so pathetic that you're Puerto Rican and you don't speak Spanish. And I'd be like, okay, Karen. Um, Her name was not Karen, but (laughs) (laughs) like stuff like that just happened throughout my formative years to where I was like, you know what? I don't, it's just going to be easier if I just say that I'm white. So then I don't have to say like, well, you see, I'm Puerto Rican, but these are the reasons why I'm not like, uh, you know, just going and launching into a whole explanation. Like I'm going to save myself that and just say that I'm white. And so I did that for a long time. And then I got to this point where I'm like, where I was like, yo, that was really messed up what I did. And it just like, oh my gosh, it's just like, this entire thing that I've been working on healing. And so I'm so glad that you said what you said because it just kind of validates this place where I am and it kind of um, makes me more certain that it is legitimate work that needs to be done and not just something that's going on in my head by myself, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's really important, especially what you say about language, because I grew up not speaking Spanish either because my mother passed away. So my first language as a baby was Spanish, but then my mother passed away when I was one and a half. And so I spent the rest of my young life speaking English. And so I hear so many times from so many Latinas in particular this idea that if you don't speak Spanish, you aren't Latina enough. You don't have the right to claim that kind of heritage and identity. And I remember being told as an 18 year old going to college uh, that I couldn't be in the Latina club or whatever it was, some group of Latinx folks um, because I didn't speak Spanish. It was like a criteria. Most of them were from Miami and other big cities that had a large Spanish speaking population. And so 
I began a journey then to really learn Spanish and find my place in Latino community, even though I wasn't as close with my mom's family. And um, it took me a long time to feel like I earned the right to call myself Latina. And that's not fair. Like, I think it is a strategy of white supremacy and imperialism that says that we must choose between these binaries of black and white, particularly in the U.S. South. So I know that you're in Baltimore and I was raised in North Carolina. And that idea that it, it there is blackness and whiteness and there is a straight line through the middle and one has to pick a side. I do think that one has to pick a side are related to white supremacy or not, right? Mm-hmm. Like we are either anti-racist, actively working on decolonizing our own minds, spirits, and working on our racism, or we are not. But the idea of identity is so much more complex than that, especially when things like race are constructed, because so many of the people that I worked with and have worked with um, in my immigration rights work, folks come here and they are not... Latinx. (laughs) They come and we are Mexican or Puerto Rican or Colombian or Peruvian. And then we get here and all of a sudden our families have this different other identity, which is most of the time not quite Black, certainly not an African-American experience, but not white either. And so there is this very insidious strategy around how do we survive? And for so many of us who have passing privilege our families have tried to help us survive by assimilating as close to whiteness or privilege or money as we can. Mm -hmm. And that's that I want to honor that my ancestors were doing the best that they could with what they had available. Mm -hmm. As a person living in 2020, I have to acknowledge how that harms black bodies and Mm -hmm. how that feeds into a system of whiteness, white supremacy and U.S. imperialism And so for me, an identity of Latinx is a different thing. You know, some folks, particularly folks who feel really close to their culture of origin and their their community of origin, push back around the idea of Latinidad. Mm -hmm. They're like, that isn't a real thing. It doesn't exist. You are Puerto Rican. I am Colombian. And that's that's what's what. And otherwise, we're just um, kind of leaning into an imperialist construction of, of identity based on our colonizer. And I really disagree with that idea. I think that for those of us, particularly who were born in diaspora from our homelands, and for those of us who were in community with folks who were not necessarily from the same culture, right? So my family was from Colombia. We didn't have anything to do with the Aztecs or the Mayas in Central America. And yet the folks that I learned about my own identity and and Spanish from were folks for whom that was kind of the reference, the indigenous reference points. And so I do believe here in the diaspora and other places that there is this thing that we ought to name that I call Latinidad, and I think a lot of others do too, which says we are not in the homelands that our people's had relationships to the earth with most of us. And yet there is something that unites us, even if it part of that is the colonizer's tongue. And I want to say that one more time, because I think that people who use this idea that somebody else isn't Latina enough because they don't speak Spanish, we need to always remind ourselves that English is a colonized language and Spanish is a colonized language. So if we were really talking about some sort of authenticity, we should all be learning indigenous languages, which I think is a fantastic idea as a side note. 
But I want to just recognize how complicated it is, right? Because it's not just you speak Spanish, you are Latina, or you come from this place. My connection is much closer to Puerto Rico, for example, and Mexico than Colombia, because I've been to those places way more times. I have more relationships with people in those lands. And so we have to do a lot of unlearning from the spiritual violence of colonization that told us we had to relinquish our ancestors who were indigenous, our ancestors who were descendants of African folks who were enslaved and brought here against their will, Mm -hmm. Uh, the descendants also of colonizers uh, from the European continent. We have a responsibility to heal those historical and generational wounds and to acknowledge our ancestors and do right by them, both in terms of the work that we need to do to heal those of our ancestors and ourselves who have been harmed from spiritual violence and colonialism and um, that whole project of the empire, and those of us who have done the, our ancestors who have done the harm. And that's runs, I think that that's something really important about Latinidad is that in our blood, in our DNA, in our ancestors' genes, runs these strands that are so complex and they all run around inside our bodies spiritually and physically and we have to do the work of trying to heal those and coming to peace with those and it's a different place than other folks who might not have um, those kinds of mixed identities yeah yeah I've I've been hearing just the thread of everything you've explained is just an idea that I keep hearing from different folks that I'm talking to and just different things that I encounter online and everything. So that, that whole complexity is really speaking to me right now. And one thing that I really want to do soon, it just as a part of my own personal figuring things out is uh, do like an ancestry DNA test and just kind of see like Mm -hmm. what is going on in there, like how much, might I have of everything for as much as those things can really tell you. Um, And just to kind of have, it it feels a little bit more solid to, to have that and to just kind of have outside confirmation of this way of understanding myself that I am hearing more and more, especially as I've been connected to Latinx communities here. Um, so that's something that I'm looking forward to doing. It'll be super neat. Um, and yeah. That stuff is super complicated because we want to be really careful that we understand that we are part of communities that we come from and origins that we come from, both through doing the best we can to sort through our history, just like you're talking about. Mm -hmm. But it also comes down to how much we are investing. It's a reciprocal relationship, right, with the community. And so, for example, this work that you're doing where you're trying to find this, these Encuentro Latinos, right, like these places of intersection is about spending our gifts and talents in community toward those people and peoples for whom we feel connected to and that Mm -hmm. those people feel connected to us, right? As opposed to this idea that we have to have a certain amount of blood, blood quantum to be able to, to deserve to call ourselves. And I think, I think that's so much of the work is internal is no one should have to tell you and you should not have to prove to anyone that you are enough Latina, right? That you have these particular mm-hmm. markers. And I think for so many of us, we're scared 
for me at least that was true, to put my foot in the water and make a political claim around what I believed and what I thought was right and justice and where my positionality was Mm -hmm. until I had done until I could check off enough boxes. I know how to cook such and such thing. I know how to speak Spanish at this level. I've been to these places. And I think what the reality is, is that that harms us in deep ways when really all of us have places where we can look back and say, I'm connected in these ways and start chasing those histories and as much as we can. For those of us who are queer, though, a lot of those roads sometimes are blocked because of heteropatriarchy and our queerness in a, or our gender interrupts our ability to connect either with family or with ancestors or for those of us who are poor and working class whose people weren't important enough in white society eyes to write down our history, or our genealogies. And so mm-hmm. it's so complicated. I think the way we do that is in community. And if something like a DNA test or learning Spanish was for me, the things that make us feel more solid or more willing to do that, then we should absolutely do those. But I think it's really important for whoever's listening to recognize that you have ancestors who are in the cloud of witnesses around you, who are with you, who are running through your DNA and your blood. And we owe them honor and we owe them respect and we owe them to keep doing the work. And not all of those are not all of those ancestors are white colonizers, right? Are conquistadores. And so there is work there to be done. And it's easier to have a simple identity. I understand so many of us, it's easier to just be white and deal with whatever it is we have to deal with and also try to take advantage of all the privileges that come along with that. But the complicated way, I think, is closer to a faithful one. Mm -hmm. And a complicated identity is something that we in the movement have to work on embracing and holding and loving each other through and holding each other accountable for our individual work, but not judging each other based on this like checklist of you deserve or don't deserve to have these identities and come at that very humbly on both sides. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Ooh, that was a sermon. Um (laughs) So what do you think? uh, Well, I guess, yeah, I guess I'll ask this first. um, Because there's a there's a space in this entire conversation where I'm like, yes, yes, I'm feeling this. And another thing that I do want to emphasize is that now I'm also in a place where I've been, I've been affirmed and loved um, by the Encuentros um, with with Rena and everybody who's in this group that is supporting me doing this podcast, I have been, um, you know, very embraced by them. And that has been very helpful for my own healing process. And at the same time, it, that energy is filling me with this much stronger sense of like, you know what, any Latinx space that embraces like this space has, and also does not embrace my black friends, the the black Latinx, because they also get that message that, oh, you know, you're not Latino enough. Um, you're, you're black or you're not black enough. Like they have that on top of systemic oppression. So it feels like it's two aspects of this same very insidious force that affects us in some similar ways and affects us in some different ways. So like I'm very I'm very much like yeah you know any if if a space or if a if a person or whatever is 
you know, giving crap to a black Latinx person about, oh, you're not Latinx or or whatever, then that's not a Latinx space that I would allow to embrace me. Like, like that person or that space that would deny that black person, the that black Latinx, the ability to be part of that community cannot then go around and like praise me for how, you know, oh, how blanquita and how bonita, right? Like it can't, you know, that's not how it should work. I haven't encountered that so far, but just that's just a thought that has been sticking in my mind so that if I do encounter that at some later point, I know where I stand. Yeah, I think it's important that we recognize that Latinx as an identity is intertwined with many other identities Mm -hmm. and we hold those together right so a black or afro descendiente latinx person is no less black is no less latinx but i do have this kind of frame that was given to me that i'm really grateful for because someone got addressed I, i was reading this article where someone was talking about you know, they asked me why I take up for my Mexican side when I'm half white, for example. Mm-hmm. And the writer said, I, this was decades ago, but it really reoriented me. And he said, I take up for the identity that needs the most taking up for at any given moment. And so I, my experience with beloveds who are Afro-Latinx is that that also is a complicated identity because being phenotypically Black in this country and particularly in the South is so intensely based on white supremacy that for some of those folks, their Blackness is what needs mm-hmm. centering because of just overt extreme racism and white supremacy. And so I've seen folks go both ways where they demand always to hold those identities together, where folks identify with different cohorts, depending on what's going on. Um, But I think it is absolutely important always and forever to say that it isn't that there are Black people and there are Latinx people, right? <laughs> right? That, that there are Black Latinx people who are every bit as Latinx as anybody else, and that that is fundamental to who we are as a people, that we have many races, ethnicities, indigenous cultures, and heritages, and to prioritize one or the or over another is a colorism and a white supremacy that we've soaked up from the colonizers. That is absolutely our work to do mm-hmm. for those of us who have that, whether it's internalized or within our communities or within our institutions. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have a daughter who is mixed and uh, has gray eyes and it hurts my heart to see to, the experiences I've had with other Latinas who are like, mm-hmm. ay, que lindo, que no sé qué, like how beautiful this child is with these light eyes when their own children have darker eyes. Um, for me, as a Latina, amongst white people, folks always thought I was the nanny, right? So that that like light-eyed phenotype made me other from my own child in the eyes of whiteness. Whereas for some of us in our Latino communities, it makes us more beautiful if we have those lighter eyes or phenotypes. Yeah, that's super heavy. And another interesting thread in my own life and my own coming into my identity is that I can pinpoint certain memories where it was Black women, uh, Black Latinas specifically, who were the most affirming of my identity. Like, 
like mm-hmm. I talked before about how I would have white friends and classmates who would you know, give me crap for how, oh, you don't speak Spanish. And they would kind of enforce that. But on the other hand, like on the flip side, later on in in my life and in college and um, one of my former coworkers, um, like I had there, there were these women who, you know, as we got to know each other and, and just right away, they they just affirmed every aspect of my identity in that way. Um, and didn't call it into question and just said like, yeah, live into it, live into it. And I'm living into it and it's a constant process, of course, but just, you know, like, like that's the other thing too, that just kind of stands out to me. It's like, of course, of course, black women would be the most affirming of that complexity. And of course, the white kids would be the ones that want to enforce and make rules about who who counts as what and what's legit when, you know, just, I mean, it's kind of a simplistic way to put it, but just when I isolate those different incidences and different memories in my life, that contrast comes out and it's like, man, that's kind of a, that's kind of a thing. Yeah. I think always it's important to recognize where, where is the hurt that we are reflecting in another, right? And so, you know, I have had many experiences with all kinds of folks, but I find that the folks that are most clear about where they come from and who they come from mm-hmm. are generally not very uptight about how I identify myself and folks that feel like they aren't quite good enough for whatever the identity is um, that they have been assigned or chosen to embrace. Mm-hmm. It's a lot harder. And so I um, I wish for all of us for for us to feel solid and stable in who we come from and where we come from in a way that doesn't let us off the hook where we're claiming identities of oppression that we don't experience or in the same way, not being allies for others, mm-hmm. but yet still have the space to really explore and do our own deep work, our own deep healing work and our own deep decolonization work to be in solidarity for the struggles for black lives alongside uh all of our struggles for liberation and justice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what do you think of the identifier white Latinx? Ooh, that's a complicated question. Yeah. And I, I will say that it's complicated for me. I think it's fine. Like, great. Call yourself Whatever the identity is that feels right for you, go for it. And I have light skin, dark hair and eyes, but, um, you know, it depends on where I am because I will tell you growing up in rural Appalachia, never once was I mistaken for a white kid. Never, Mm. (laughs) never once. I um, lived in a community that was 97% white and 3% black. And that community understood me to be mixed. I was always assumed that I had a black parent and a white parent because there weren't very many Latinos where I lived. And so, you know, it's really interesting because in lots of spaces, particularly urban spaces I go, I would be white passing and uh, especially in the North. And so it's a really interesting juxtaposition. I think how we identify depends a lot on where we're from and where we are. And so, if somebody said, oh, you're a white Latina, I, would, I wouldn't negate that um, as long as we're clear that Latina is 
a complicated identity that ha- that means that I have ancestors from many places and ma- of many more than one race. Um, and I will say that it totally depends because my entire life growing up until now, still living in North Carolina, I get asked where I'm from. I have an I had more as a child, but I have a Southern accent. I was born and raised like lifelong Southerner, lifelong Southerner, North Carolina and Tennessee. And I don't know that there was a week that goes by that I'm not asked by somebody where I'm from. And when I say North Carolina, they say, no, no, where are you really from? And so that act of othering and displacing, even when it's not intended to harm by white Mm -hmm. folks, by black folks, by all kinds of folks in the South, I think is this I this understanding that we need to recognize that I phenotypic identity depends so much on culture. If I were in a place where there were many Latinas, I think that I read very differently when I'm in a place in a context that is almost exclusively black or white. So I generally am not one to police anybody else's identity. What I what I do feel passionately about is people who hide or ignore their I their heritage and their ancestors because it's easier or because they don't feel worthy of claiming a more complicated identity like mm-hmm. Latina. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I've i been uh, just in my own personal space of um, figuring myself out in these new ways. Um, I've realized that I really need to decenter whiteness in the way that I describe myself. So I've been I've been um, internally uh, thinking about and kind of embracing lately this phrase frame Latina with right with white. I'm going to say it again, Latina with white privilege. And I think that does a couple of things for me personally. I think mm-hmm. it makes it so the white part isn't the first part when in so much of my life, the white part was the first part that erased and covered over everything else. But it also acknowledges um, yeah. the the way that I navigate the world and the way that I'm read in the world. Um, so I don't know how long I might stick with that, but it's an interesting mm-hmm. phrase frame. And I floated it by a, uh, a mutual friend on Twitter who is um, she identifies as biracial, white and Arabic, and she's been on her own journey um, doing doing work. And she recently published a blog article where she talked about some stuff with that. So we got into a conversation about that. And I said, like, I've been floating this phrase frame just kind of for myself. And when she saw it, she's like, that's super helpful. So it's so it's kind of this interesting thing where like, I mean, look, if I'm if I'm reading a Twitter conversation or any type of conversation and people say white Latinx and not all this, like, I'm not going to come in and be like, actually, like, because no, that's that's not you know, that's not what I'm going to do. Um, and I, I understand it that, you know, also white Latinx is fewer words to say. It's It doesn't take as long to get out of your mouth. Um, and it's more of a generally understood um, way of talking about people and um, and systems and things like that. So I'm, I'm not like saying that, oh, we should, you know, completely replace that that phrase and use this different one in all times forever but just as like a personal thing 
um, a personal identifier. And I, you know, I actually have a draft of an essay that I might post on my blog um, to that kind of explains all of this and to just kind of offer it to any other um, mixed people with white privilege or white passing privilege, however it is that you particularly determine that. Um, if that's a helpful phrase for people, because you maybe you need to decenter whiteness too, and if that helps you in your internal journey, then like yeah, take it. Um, so, so yeah, like what do you what do you think about all that? I think identity and figuring out how we name ourselves and how we honor where we come from and what privileges we have are really an important part of our journey. I also in general, care a lot about what people are actually doing. So I'm much more of an action, speak Mm -hmm. louder than words kind of person. And I think that for most of us, we have to go through, I certainly am continuing and have been on for a very long time, a journey to figure out how to do the work that is mine to do in the world and name myself accordingly. Um, And what is most important to me is that those to whom I'm accountable and in community with, understand that I will make mistakes. Mm -hmm. I will do things that cause harm, um, not intentionally necessarily, but that there is a structure of um, interdependence and accountability that both allows for grace and holds me accountable and measures my anti-racism or measures my work based on what I actually do in the world alongside whatever words uh, that I use Mm -hmm. to describe myself. So I just think it's, it's so important that we really focus on what it is that we're doing to sabotage Christian supremacy, to deconstruct white supremacy, to show up in a way that for real helps change flourish and and is about a collective movement toward a different reality than the one that we are currently experiencing where so many of our black brothers and sisters within and without the latinx community are fighting for their lives on a daily basis because it's a different for me it's a different investment it's a different investment than being a white ally It is an investment that has to do with my own life, my own history, my ancestors, and a true belief that until we honor and and pay reparations, both monetarily and spiritually, uh, academically, culturally, historically, for the original sin of this country and much of the empire, that we will not be able to build the society together that we are hoping for. And so it just feels so important that our actions match the, the language that we use both to describe ourselves and, um, and our politics, you know, cause words mm-hmm. alone are not enough. Yeah. That's certainly one of the, one of the potential uh, dangers of using this phrase. Like I don't, I don't think I would have come to it if I wasn't already on this long journey of deconstructing things and, and really like being against white supremacy um, and, and doing that work. Like, I don't think just, I personally could not have even come to that phrase at all without, if I wasn't already um, doing that in, in a sense, but I, I do think that it's the intention behind using that phrase frame is not to like, 
not to deny anything, any privileges and benefits that you've gotten because of white supremacy. Like if that's the way that people are going to use it, then in my opinion, they're not using it in the right way. The purpose of it, the purpose (laughs) of it is like, if you have this, this identity, this culture that was erased from you because whiteness said, come assimilate with me. And it was easy. And you you did that even if you weren't fully conscious of it. And now you're in a space of needing to decenter that and let this other repressed part of yourself breathe. That is the purpose of this phrase frame. The, the purpose, it, it's not mm-hmm. to, it's not to like, say if somebody, um, it, it's, it's not to push back against the realities of white supremacy and racism. If people are going to use it in that way, then that's not at all the correct way to, to be using it, in my opinion. So, um, mm-hmm. so yeah, I mean, I think that, I, I think that, yeah, the actions and and internal work, like they they do go together. Um, and if they don't go together, then it kind of seems like something is is missing. Yeah. So. What experiences do you have with spirituality or religion and how have those experiences intersected with your sexuality and or your gender, your gender identity? Ooh, we could be here all night talking about that, uh, <laughs> which I would love to, but I think this is an hour long podcast, which seems like about as much time anyone will want to listen to me talk. Uh, and I will maybe just start at the end, which is to say that uh, now I dedicate my life to ending guilt, shame, and fear, wherever they may be, but particularly in regards to gender, sexuality, uh, pleasure, and sex. And so spirituality for me has everything to do that, everything to do with that, uh, Audre Lorde, who is an amazing, if you don't know Audre Lorde, uh, is one of our ancestors, Black feminist, poet, writer, I think theologian, even though I'm not sure she claimed that term, talks about this idea of the erotic as something that is the deep yes in our bones where something we know something is right. And so as a queer femme, for me, that, that knowing you know, and the erotic extends beyond just sexuality, but I, I use it for that in this context, you know, also known as reverend sex, because most of my work has been on sexual ethics within queer community and based on queer desire, particularly those of us of color. Uh, and so I will just say that it was the kiss from another girl when I was a teenager that was the yes, that was so deep and so powerful and to me so connected to the divine goodness, to things that God wanted for an abundant life for me, that helped me coming from a Southern Baptist fundamentalist background, say yes to that kind of queer love that my entire life and everything in my culture, my family, my school told me no. And so I think for me, the connection between my sexuality and my gender to God is a one-to-one kind of relationship. I feel so blessed, so, so, so utterly blessed to be queer, 
And if there was a way that it could be undone, my grandmother, when I told her, she said to me, oh, honey, I'm so sorry. I wish there was just a pill or something they could give you for that. And it made me giggle because I was far enough along in my journey of coming out of the closet to say, you know, grandma, if I could take a pill to get rid of it, I would run the other way because this has been the most important moment, turning point in my journey to understand that my responsibility is to God. My responsibility is to the gifts and authenticity that were put in my being as a queer person. I had a choice in the sense that I had a choice to be authentic or not, to live into what I knew was true about me or not, and uh, to fully say yes over the years and over process to what God has offered me in my queerness, um, in my love, in my relationships, in my body, in my sexuality, in my pleasure, in my desire, and really work from a Bible context, from a very conservative Christian framework to unpack, decode those messages that are actually just an overlay of white supremacy or imperialism or heteropatriarchy and really uncover what I believe both in the Bible and in my own experience uh, is the joy and connection of pleasure, sexuality, and sex alongside many other wonderful connections that are not sexual uh, to the divine, to creation, to God. That is beautiful. And what a complex tapestry, complex in a very good way. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So that leads me into your work at Soul Force and this whole concept of dismantling Christian supremacy. Can you unpack for us this idea of Christian supremacy and what it is that you're doing at Soul Force to dismantle that? Yeah, I'll do my as best as I can to do that in the short version. Uh, Soul Force is an LGBT nonprofit uh, in the U.S. and also we work with folks in other hostile contexts uh, in the in the Christian world. And Christian supremacy for us is something that is a concept that helps us name that which is not religion, right? So I am not talking about the Christian faith. I am talking about systems of power like white supremacy, like heteropatriarchy, like, you know, systems of power and domination across time that have stolen and used both the culture, the language, the framework the sacred text and the institutions of Christianity to try to perpetuate harm from when the church said that owning another human being was an acceptable, that one could be a good Christian while being a slaver to right now where the Trump administration says that it is the will of God that that government be in place and therefore separating children from their parents at the border is God's will and is acceptable, morally acceptable, when any Christian I know knows that that is morally repugnant. And so we use this word called Christian, this phrase, Christian supremacy, to help us name that which is not faith, that which is not religion. It is rather a stolen and cloaked power that uses the sheep's clothing, if you will, of Christianity to get away with murder, harm, oppression and domination. And so what we do at Soul Force is through theological education, 
through strategic direct action support. We work on the ideologies, those things that get stuck in our brain, that get stuck in our minds, that make all of us more complicit with those systems of harm. So even a basic concept, for example, that black is bad or dark is evil and light is good and light is God, that's such a small example, and for many would be kind of um, benign, is a frame that helps us see, for example, that there is this idea that there are two opposites that do not cross, a black and a white, a good and a bad, an evil and a godly. And that frame, that very idea of binary, mutually exclusive terms, is a part of a Christian supremacist project where we do not talk about gray or where we do not think about darkness as being closer to the womb where things are created, where new ideas are generated or part of the earth where seeds are germinating and growing and producing new life and where light is something that is maybe cold or like the snow being pure rather than something that freezes mm-hmm. and kills. Right. So we there are selective ways of seeing these cultural ideas, something that simple. Right. That are that is an easy one. And there are many more that are much more impactful. Uh, For example, that God only made two genders, male and female. And that's somehow connected with this creature named Adam and this creature named Eve. Those kinds of ideas have been passed along and repeated so many times that we find them a part of our normal culture and therefore we can't, most of us can't even identify them. I certainly, as a young person, until I started working with Soul Force, hadn't done the work to recognize that that very idea that there's only two genders and God made it that way and anybody who was outside of that wasn't living in the will of God. That little thing that seemed little at the time when somebody said it, I was like, oh, of course that's true. You know, these many years later, I can see directly how that contributes to physical violence and death on trans bodies, on non-binary bodies, on queer bodies that don't fit these gender norms of who we're supposed to love or what we're supposed to look like. So we do that idea work, basically. We try to get at the root of the problem, try to get underneath what's really being said when the administration says, let's make America great again. Well, make America great for who and when was it great and for whom was it great? And some of that is is political work. And a lot of that is also religious work. And so we are a religious based organization, although we are people of faith and I am an ordained pastor. Um, but we do that work to help queer people and other marginalized folks heal from religious trauma that we've experienced either in the church or in general culture. And then the other side of that is we try to really deconstruct and empower folks with both ideological arguments and truths and data and history that help folks understand how we address these religious-based frames that cause harm to our people and have the potential to shift the narratives if we get better at and more able to take on these kind of right-wing religious kinds of conversations without fear and without doubt and with clarity about our conviction as people of faith um, or as people of moral conscience. That sounds like amazing work. And I can tell you listeners right now that as of this recording, I've watched about 20 minutes of one of the Soul Force webinars, and um, it's really insightful and really interesting stuff to go in deep in those 
ways of understanding scripture that, I mean, at least I've certainly have picked up here and there over the years. And, um, but it's nice to hear that conversation in depth. I don't think we talked about what tradition you're ordained in. Oh, thanks for asking. It's a complicated story, as with all stories. I am queer and non-monogamous and a mama, and that makes me pretty much unordainable in almost all denominations, including the UCC, uh, because of the rules around covenant and marriage and things like that. So uh, I was originally ordained by a radical leftist political community in Durham, North Carolina, which is my political home. And I also was installed and confirmed in an interfaith congregation here in Asheville, uh, North Carolina, called Jubilee Community. And so in that community, I serve as one of the ministers as an evangelist. And um, my messages are around justice and equality, specifically around sex, sexuality, pleasure, um, and sexual orientation for folks. So I'm one of multiple ministers on staff and we come from different faith traditions. I am still a Christian and so I still use a Christian framework um, in my sermons and in my ministry, but mostly who my congregation is or who my people are, folks that follow Soul Force, mostly LGBT folks who are from either the US South, folks of color uh, around the country, Lots of white folks, too, folks in Latin America, East Africa, different folks who connect with the work that Soul Force is doing. Because for me, even though the organization is not a religious-based organization, it is absolutely a ministry for me. And it is the work of my spirit, is the work of my purpose. And so most of the work that I do is funneled into things like Vacation Bible School, which is a kind of core, a small course that we do celebrating the queerness of creation with all of our animal comrades who show us that we as queer and trans people are not outside of nature, but rather an absolutely beautiful part of a very complex and creative creation that we absolutely make sense in when we look at it from that point of view, for example. Wonderful. Um, I find your ordination story so interesting because there definitely is this kind of broad questioning over the credentials that one has to have to be ordained anywhere and how useful are those credentials anymore and who do those credentials leave out? I I knew somebody several years ago who was totally you know, on this path to be ordained in the Methodist church and they were queer and, you know, but they had this at that time in, in their life, they had this sense of like, I'm going to stay and I'm going to stay within and, and do this work. And there are some people who do stay within and are doing that work and will jump through all the, all the hoops and because they find that that's important, but then you know, there are so many other people who they reach a point where it it becomes this choice between pursuing the ordination to have some type of say in the direction of the denomination and versus living authentically. And that's such a sad choice to have to make. So I, I think that I think that your story is particularly interesting and um, a story about 
doing ministry on the margins um, because, you know, like you said, you were barred from all of these different ways of becoming ordained um, because of how you're living authentically. So I, I yeah, I find that. It's really interesting. Um, actually, I was raised Southern Baptist, so there is an independent streak in me that they instilled in me that will never go away. And it says my responsibility is to God and not to mm-hmm. you, whoever you is, whether it's the institution or a pastor or whatever. And so, um, yeah, I I don't know that I would choose ordination in a denomination now if it were even offered or if it became available, because what I think is often true is inside of denominations, particularly ones that have kind of hierarchical structures, there's a lot of silencing that goes on. I can't tell you how many ministers and clergy and would-be ministers and clergy that I met who had stories that were secret. And because of me living out loud and on purpose about who I am, I heard so many narratives, both hard stories, but also so many narratives of love and gender uh, that had to do with queerness, transness, different multiple kinds of identities um, that were not allowed to be open, that were not allowed to be heard, that were not allowed to be lived because of this prioritizing of a life call to church ministry. And so for me, I feel like I have a foul mouth. I'm from the South. I wear high heels and lipstick. I'm, I talk about sex a lot because it's where so many of us have shame and guilt and dislike and displeasure. And so I really focus on ethics and sex and pleasure. And so not only do I not think many denominations would want me in addition to their rules that don't allow me to get ordained, but I don't think I want them because it's really important to me in this moment in particular in my life to be able to tell the truth and tell the truth before my God and before my community in ways that are honest and help folks identify the hypocrisy that exists in so many of our churches and helps folks see that there is a way forward. There is a way possible. There's a way of spirituality or even Christianity if you want that. If you don't, great. But if you do and you feel excluded from it because you're not fill in the blank enough or because of identities that you hold from being a person who likes kink to being a non-monogamous person to being a queer person, etc., If somebody has told you that you don't belong within a Christian faith or within a community of faith, then many of us have believed that or have just felt so uncomfortable that we either shut down or walk away. And my ministry is much more to say within the movement, within La Lucha, there's space for us and we can be people of faith and there are ways to live our spirituality. There are ways to be people of multiple and complicated faiths, including religious traditions, earth-based traditions, uh, other organized religions, that that kind of exclusivity, that straight and narrow, if you will, is not only not the way of God, but it is not the way of human life and human beings who live in abundance. So if we let that be aside and actually live into authenticity to do the work of connecting with our creator and the divinity that is around us in creation and figuring out who we are and what our unique gifts are and what our unique purposes are, I think it's so much more possible, so, so, so much more possible to bring the incoming 
of the new creation, to work together to build the kingdom that is supposed to be what we think of when we think of heaven or when we think of new creation. And so I will always be an evangelical. I will always be ferociously independent and loud and mouthy. And the people who resonate with the kind of work that I do are my people, regardless of whether they're inside or outside of an institution. Beautiful. So where can our listeners keep up with you and your work? This is your chance to drop any personal social media that you want to do, stuff about Soul Force or anything else that you're doing. Yeah, thanks so much for asking. You can find Soul Force on Facebook and Instagram at Soul Force Organization. And uh, I'm running a podcast that is like a Facebook Live version of podcast, which is in Spanish called Theología Sin Vergüenza, which means shameless theology, as in without shame. And that you can find at arroba tío sin vergüenza on Instagram and on Facebook. And personally, you can find me at reverendsex.com and reverend underscore sex on Instagram. And so that's mainly where you see us these days. And to wrap this all up, what is one thing about being Latinx and LGBTQ that you want the rest of the world to understand? Ooh, I don't know that I care much about what the rest of the world understands. What I would love to say is for those of us who are Latinx and LGBTQ and find that intersection difficult, I want to say to us that you are not alone. You have community. We are out here. Yes, it takes some extra bit of looking, but don't give up. And you have the right to claim fully and wholly both your Latinidad and your queerness, your transness, whatever your sexual orientation identity, alongside all of your other identities, that it's okay to be complicated and don't ever believe anyone who tells you that God made things simple and therefore you need to live into a simple version of yourself. Because I feel like if the rest of the world knows, great, but if they don't, they'll learn soon enough that we are here We are so much a part of our communities of faith, a part of our societies, and we're getting stronger and louder, not less strong and more quiet, right? So we are working to build our community, to build our people, to get ourselves right in relation to other movements that are alongside of us. And being Latinx, a person of faith and LGBTQ is a wonderful blessing that has sometimes a lot of heartache, but it is possible it is possible that it will feel like a blessing and just keep at it and come find us. Amazing. I will say amen to that. Alba, thank you so much for (laughs) coming on the show today and for sharing everything that you're doing and providing us with so many interesting new ways to think about identity and experience and all of that. You are so welcome. Thank you for the invitation. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for listening to today's show. Please remember to rate and review it wherever you are listening to it. You can keep up with this podcast and all of Proyecto's work on Facebook. This episode was recorded by me and edited by Yari Martinez-Reyna. We hope you'll join us for our next Encuentro.